morning, friends. I want to say welcome to Vernonia Church and our online teaching time. I'm so glad that you've joined us today. My name is Sam. I'm the pastor here at Vernonia Church, and I have the chance to share with you today as we dive into God's Word. Hey, in just a few moments, we're going to continue our series where we're talking about the book of Esther, and we're talking about Esther living a life in exile. And today we're going to dive into a message where we're going to see that Jesus' kingdom is a more righteous kingdom, and it's going to be a great day. Before we dive into the message, I do want to encourage you, make sure you're doing all of the social media things that we do. Make sure you're liking, subscribing, hitting sub notification bells. Make sure you're sharing and, and doing all that stuff so that you can help us. It really does help us as we're trying to reach out to more people, as we're trying to grow this podcast, this YouTube channel, this Facebook. Uh, I, I wanna just encourage you, make sure you're doing all those things to help us as we can reach as many people as we can with the message of the gospel, with a hope that there is a, a more righteous, a better kingdom than the kingdom of this world. Well, I want to invite you to pray with me before we dive in today, and uh, let's pray together. I'd like to pray for you. I'd like to pray with you, and let's just pray. Father in heaven, uh, we come before you right now, and we ask that you will bless this time that we dive into your word together. God, I ask your blessing and uh, that, that you would reach out and touch the hearts and the minds of every person that's joining us here online today. God, I want to ask that you would uh, help someone hear exactly what you want them to hear today, that you would uh, just orchestrate and organize behind the scenes, just like you do in the book of Esther, where you would bring together a message, where you would bring together a word of hope and help uh, to someone who needs it today. God, I ask that you would just bless each one who's here, that you would bring your blessing, that you would bring your grace and compassion and love into their life today. And I pray that you will open our hearts and our minds to understand just why you share what you share with us today in, in chapter one of the book of Esther. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said together, amen. Well, like I said, I want to dive into this teaching today where we're going to talk about uh, a more righteous kingdom. But before we do that, we're, we've got to sort of compare the righteous kingdom to the, well, the kingdom that's described for us in, in Esther chapter 1. Well, you may have heard the story of the young boy who grew up in Italy and then moved to Harlem, New York when he was young. His father opened up a, a little grocery store, a, a community grocery store, but he decided that the money wasn't quite right. And so when he was 13, he began to get involved in the gang life on the streets of New York. He grew up and became friends with another gangster who was named Charlie. And uh, the two of them got involved in all kinds of crime together, and they began to orchestrate crimes together. They got involved in robbery, theft, extortion, racketeering, gambling, bribes, prostitution, drugs, and even murder. I mean, uh, this young man grew up to be quite the man. Well, these two together conducted crime like it was a business for profit, and, and they were incredibly good at it, and they really did did bring about uh, high profits. Well, when Prohibition started, uh, they moved into the sale and distribution of liquor, and, and they built an empire. By the 1970s, this man was one of the most powerful men in the country, uh, with politicians and police in his pocket, and, and criminals who would do his bidding and wanted to please him. Uh, he was the head of one of five mafia crime families 
families, uh, the Luciano family. And, and even though the mafia would have probably preferred not to be in the limelight and become a part of pop culture, well, uh, he sort of became well-known because his story, the story of Frank Costello, was loosely told with the movies The Godfather and The Godfather series. Uh, Marlon Brando even tried to mimic the way that Frank Costello spoke when he played his role in The Godfather. Well, that movie, those movies, The Godfather movies, fascinated people as they imagined what it would be like to be so powerful, so untouchable, so feared, and so wealthy. Well, did you ever stop to think about why? Why would stories of the likes of mafia dons and kings and, and, and mafia criminals become a part of pop culture and their movies become so popular? Well, as someone who's interested in human behavior and I like to, I, I like to figure things like that out, I, I started asking, well, why are people so fascinated and entertained and drawn by movies of, uh, about people who are who are powerful and yet use that power in in any way shape or form they want to without morals i include myself in that question because uh, because i like mafia movies if i'm going to be honest with you why do people like shows about biker gangs that and those shows become a big deal in pop culture oh, why do people like shows about a a rancher in montana who basically acts like a cowboy version of the Mafia. Uh, if you're a Yellowstone fan, you know what I'm talking about. Well, well, maybe it's because there's a part of all of us that wants to enjoy the thought of having unlimited power and unrestricted power. Uh, there's a part of us that really thinks of the idea of, of building a kingdom around us where we get to sit as the Godfather, as the Don, and have anyone uh, do our bidding for us. Well, those movies and shows, they romanticize that world. They sort of make that world look uh, look romantic and sexy, and they make that world look like a world of power. Uh, you know, imagine, put yourself in the seat of, of the father of the Yellowstone Dutton Ranch. You know, no one questions your word. Everyone does your bidding, or they go to the train station. Uh, you could have untold riches and power at your disposal, and, and and for a brief 45 minutes as you watch that episode, you sort of put yourself in their seat and, and you enjoy the story as you imagine having your own little kingdom. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm an absolute geek about mob movies. I, I love mob movies. I even uh, I even uh, enjoyed the story of Yellowstone. And the Godfather series is sort of at the top of my favorites list when it comes to movies I like. I love watching Al Pacino. Chone, uh, or sorry, Al Pacino, take the Cor Cor Corelli Corleone family, Corleone family, uh, and dish out criminal justice to their enemies. And, and I like mob movies, mob documentaries, mob history. Maybe it's because I'm from New York and I've kind of heard about it all my life. And, and maybe it's because I like American history and, and the mob is a part of America's, America's history. It's sort of an interesting side to it for me. Well, it can be fun to fantasize and romanticize all of the stories about it. But the truth is that that world is a world filled with darkness. It's a world filled with human depravity. It's a world filled with fear and betrayal and bitterness and hurt and depression and anger and murder. It's a world where in the, in the words of a uh, of an ex-mafia boss, it's a world where you can walk into a room with your best friend and and you'll never walk out again because your best friend was told to stab you in the back. Well, that world basically reminds us of the world of 
the kingdom of Persia, the world that we're going to enter into in Esther chapter 1. It was a world run by a man who would make mafia dons and mafia bosses and the Corleone, I don't know why I can't say it today, Corleone family uh, looked like a children's ballerina rehearsal. I mean, Xerxes had this kingdom that in his entire kingdom was like that world, filled with worldliness and darkness. And, and Xerxes' kingdom, you never knew what was going to happen at the whim of Xerxes. Well, last week we began studying this book, the, the small, short little book of Esther in the Old Testament, and, and we're looking at this series called Living a Life in Exile. And we'll see that Esther will be this woman who will show us how to live a life faithfully and live in a way that's faithful to God's will, even when you're in the midst of a world of darkness and a world that's forgotten him, even when you're in the midst of a sinful kingdom, whether it be a mafia kingdom or 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 the kingdom of Persia and Xerxes' kingdom, or whether it be the kingdom of the world we live in, because, uh, because really those are both a picture of the world we live in. And, and, and so we're going to see this woman. She's going to live faithfully in this world. In the midst of a sinful kingdom, she's going to show us how to be Christians and live in exile in this world uh, while we wait for Jesus, while we seek Jesus, well, we look to God and try to discover what God wants and who God is and, 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 and who God wants us to be and what it's like to be a part of his kingdom, to be, to be uh, a member of his kingdom. We're going to see how do we do that in a world that's turned from God and forgotten him. Well, last week we saw Xerxes, the king of Persia, and we got to know him. And we talked about how living faithfully in exile is knowing that we serve a more worthy king. And uh, kings who sit on the top of their kingdoms, any king who sits on the top of a kingdom, whether it's sitting on top of the uh, the Luciano, uh, or sorry, the uh, the crime family, whether it's uh, sitting on top of the Corle Corle Corleone family. I, I don't know if I should just redo this because I keep getting that word wrong. Or you could just laugh at me. That's fine. Uh, or whether it's uh, or or whether it's your Xerxes sitting on the top of Persia. Uh, no king is as worthy as King Jesus. No king is as worthy as of serving and loving and, and trying to follow and see his will done in your life than Jesus. And now we're going to see that no kingdom is as righteous or as good as Jesus' kingdom. And we're going to sort of put that at the backdrop of Xerxes and his kingdom. Uh, we, we took a look at Xerxes as king. We saw last week at the beginning of chapter 1 that there was this big party that lasted for six months and we saw how lavish it was. We saw how Xerxes wanted to put on display his wealth, his power, his pomp, his splendor. He wanted people to worship him. And uh, now we're going to see Xerxes continues and he, he's going to continue to, uh, well, to serve a, a worldly kingdom, to be incredibly worldly, and to paint a picture for us of where the world goes without God. Well, let's pick it up in Esther chapter 1, verses 10 to 22. It says this, On the seventh day of the feast, so we're at the seventh day after the 180 days of celebration for the, the elite, there was the seven days of the celebration for everyone else. And so on the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was high in spirits because of the wine, he told the seven eunuchs who attended him, Mehman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abiktha, Zethar, and, and Carcass. And this is one of those times where you're almost better off if you don't know how to pronounce them. You just say them fast, right? Well, he told these guys to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. When they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. This made the king furious, and he burned with anger. 
He immediately consulted his wise advisors who knew all the Persian laws and customs, for he always asked their advice. The names of these men were uh, Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, uh, Tarshish, Muris, Mersena, and Memukan, seven nobles of Persia and Media. They met with the king regularly and held the highest positions in the empire. What must be done to Queen Vashti, the king demanded. What penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's orders, uh, pro properly sent through his eunuchs? Memukan answered the king and his nobles. Queen Vashti was has wronged not only the king, but every noble and citizen throughout the empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands, and they will learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Before this day is out, the wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Media will hear what the queen did and will start treating their husbands the same way. There will be no end to their contempt and anger. And so if it pleases the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and Medes that cannot be revoked. It should order that Queen Vashti be forever banished from the presence of King Xerxes, and that the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. When this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever rank, will receive proper respect for from their wives. The king and his nobles thought this made good sense, and so he followed Memucan's counsel, he sent letters to all the parts of the empire, to each province in its own script and language, proclaiming that every man should be the ruler of his own home, and he should say whatever he pleases. Basically, every man should act like Xerxes, should act like a mafia don of their own home. And in a way, the kingdom of Xerxes is going to be sort of symbolic of the world in general. Uh, he's symbolic of the worldly world that has forgotten God. Sometimes when the scriptures talk about the world, the, the scriptures will be referring to the earth, the creation of God, the created world. Sometimes when the scriptures talk about the world, it'll be talking about the people of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whatever people believe in him would have everlasting life. And sometimes the Bible will use the world in another way. It will use the word world to describe worldliness. It will use the word world to describe an attitude, to describe a spiritual condition, to describe a, a brokenness in the world and the darkness of the world, where even Jesus would say that Satan was the prince of this world. And so today when I talk about the idea of the world, or I talk about the idea of worldly, I'm not just talking about the earth or the planet or the people of the world that God loves. No, I'm talking about a spiritual condition, a world like the world of King Xerxes, a world like, uh, that's a world of darkness and brokenness that has a, an attitude against God, an attitude of rebellion against God, a world where where people love the things of the world and hate God, uh, a world where people disregard God but desire the power and the cravings and the things of this world. And Xerxes is going to sort of give us a picture of worldliness. He's sort of like the, the end result of, of, the, uh, of the aspirations of anyone who wants to live worldly. I mean, the difference between him and most people of the world is that he had the, the wealth, authority, and power to live, uh, to live that way. And most of the rest of the world doesn't, although they sure would like to. And so today, we're going to look at this idea of, well, a, a kingdom that's worldly versus a kingdom that's righteous. And those of us who are seeking God and, and those of us who are seeking Jesus' will, we're, we're seeking 
a righteous kingdom, not a worldly one. Although sometimes it can get hard to tell when you look at the life of a Christian. Sometimes we can forget that although we live in this world, we are in exile here waiting to be a part of of another world, a world that's our home, a a righteous world. The Apostle Paul uh, will warn us against living worldly. And first, sorry, the Apostle Peter, I'll start with Peter, we'll move into Paul, but the Apostle Peter will warn us against uh, worldly living. In 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners, you're temporary residents in this world. You're, you're foreigners in this world. Jesus has claimed you and called you up out of this world. So I'm warning you to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Now, the Apostle Paul will teach young Titus to teach the church around him in Titus 2, 11 to 13, saying this, Turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God, while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. In other words, what he's telling uh, young Titus is that the way to live in exile in this world is to turn from sinfulness and try try to be devoted to God and live in righteousness. Now, the Apostle John will write in 1 John 2, 15 to 16, saying this, Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world world. And here Xerxes is filled with this worldly living. He's not turning away from the world, but he's diving deep into it. And he absolutely is loving it, and and he absolutely is being filled with it. And, And no one in this world can think, say a thing about it to him, because he's the most powerful man in the world at the time, and and possibly at the top of the list of the most powerful men in all of history. And here in this story, we see him dive in. He's diving into worldly living. For six months, he's just really gone deep into it. Uh, Our text says that he was high in spirits because of wine. And if you missed last week, uh, you might remember that this is 187 days of a party with with open bar. You know, it's, it's been drinking and drinking and more drinking for 187 days. The king has been just filling up on on alcohol and uh, and for the last seven days he's been feeling pretty loose and and happy and buzzed and and he's got his beer goggles on he's got his drunk sense of humor uh, and uh, you know people that think they're funny when they're drunk but they're not always that funny and and he had his he has his liquid courage up which this man doesn't need any extra courage any extra feelings of uh, being powerful and then he's feeling a little frisky he thought he was pretty smart came up with this great idea and some people think that drinking makes them smart funny and sexy and and the truth is is that really what happens is drinking dulls their senses so they can't see how stupid how not funny and how how self-serving they really are they just feel that buzz and they think they're all that Uh, and people make a lot of bad decisions when they're when they're feeling all uh, frisky like this, don't they? People wake up from heavy drinking with all kinds of questions about the decisions they made the previous uh, night. Uh, they might have questions like, I uh, wonder where my uh, wallet went and and where my car is and how did I get here and and uh, how much is bail and uh, how, how, well, what happened uh, last night and, and where's my pants and, and, and where did this new tattoo come from and, and who did I marry and, and what relationship did I 
ruin? And, and why is my spouse leaving? And, and why am I getting divorced? And, and why am I all alone and depressed? And, and where's the toilet and a big bottle of ibuprofen? I, I mean, people ask all kinds of good questions because of the smart things they did the previous night, don't they? Well, I'm not, I'm not here really to pick on drinking, per se. Uh, now, the Bible will say that uh, drinking in and of itself, it, it isn't a sin. But it does teach that drinking and, and teetotaling are matters of the conscience and matters of faith for uh, every Christian to decide for themselves. And, and we're not supposed to fight about it, that, uh, th that our conscience should tell us whether or not we should be drinking. If you can't stop when it's time to stop, if you can't control your drinking, if you make bad decisions when you've been drinking, if you ask the previous questions and maybe you ask them regularly, then maybe for you, uh, drinking would be sinful for you. But for others, they can drink and drink responsibly. They can do it in faith, but we're not supposed to flaunt it or fight over it or cause it to destroy the church or the work of the church. And, and we're not to, supposed to make each other feel like less of a Christian because of our belief or position on it. But over-drinking clearly is called sin in Scripture. Drunkenness is clearly sin. Alcoholism is clearly sin. If you wake up in the morning after you've drank and, and you flirted with the world and you started fights and you run for the toilet and you pound ibuprofen or you need another drink right first thing in the morning, you may have some repenting to do. You may have something uh, of a struggle in your life. I remember one time, I don't know if I was, uh, I don't know if it was just because of the way I looked, if I had red eyes or bags under my eyes, or if I uh, was carrying maybe the stress of the uh, the day on my shoulders. I, I, I hadn't been drinking. I, 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 I hadn't been drinking for a long time, and I went to breakfast with a friend, and we we went out to breakfast. Uh, we went to this little diner, and uh, we're we're getting ready to order our bacon and eggs, and the waitress comes up, and she sort of looks at me with a little bit of one of those compassionate looks, like, oh, you look like you've had a hard time, and, and she looks at me, and she says, well, do you need an eye-opener, Bloody Mary? <laughs> and I looked at her, and I I don't think I've ever been asked that in all my life, either before then or after then. No, I've had I've had waitress walk up to me and say, you look like you could use some coffee, you know, you look like you could use an espresso. But I've never had one say to me, you look like you could use an eye-opener Bloody Mary. Oh, well, I guess if you look like you could use an eye-opener Bloody Mary and then you actually could use an eye-opener Bloody Mary, that might be an indication that that there's a problem in your life. Well, Xerxes has been indulging in, in, in this. He and all of the men of the kingdom have been in this party for 187 days, and, and Vashti, the queen, has had her own version of the same party in another part of the palace. There were no women in, in the group of men, and there were no men in the group of women and the queen and the ladies are having their are having their party and then the king decides as he's sitting there probably all crooked and bent over in his on his throne and he has this idea, hey, go get Queen Vashti. And he sends these poor seven dudes uh, who are eunuchs. And they've been made eunuchs because they serve the king. And, and in serving the king, they'll have interaction with the queen. And there can't be any chance of uh, mixing bloodlines or having problems. And so these men that would serve the king and serve the queen would, well, they'd be made eunuchs. And, and so these seven eunuchs are sent to go fetch the queen. And the queen, wow. The queen says no to someone who you don't say no to. You know, when he makes an offer you can't refuse, well, you can't refuse. And we're going to see that uh, he will continue in that process throughout the book of Esther. Uh, but 
But Queen Vashti says no. And what he, she says no to is, is he wants the queen to come out and to, to be put on display. He, he wants her to wear her royal crown and, and probably wants her to be scantily dressed so that she could parade around in front of these tens of thousands of drunk men. Uh, he, he wants her to parade herself around, to show herself around to show how beautiful she is, to show how what a, what a man he is, that he has this wife that's so pretty and good looking. And, and he wants all the men in the room to gawk at her. And, and, and she says, no, no, I, I don't want to uh, be put on display in front of a room full of, of tens of thousands of drunk men. And, uh, and, and who knows, they'll be groping and maybe worse things that are going to go on. And, and so, no, well, this would bring us to this picture of what worldly looks like. The king and, and his kingdom will be a picture and a symbol of worldliness. Worldliness is self-serving, overindulgent, and addicted. Worldliness is pompous, prideful, arrogant. Worldliness mistreats women, treats them as objects and servants and slaves and not people. Worldliness throws a tantrum and gets angry and demanding when it doesn't get its own way. Our, our text says that when she said no to him and, and he received the message that he was burning with anger and seething and and he goes from being lustful drunk to angry drunk and 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 bitter drunk and now he's going to move into abusive drunk and and worldliness is well it's self-worshipping she refuses him she says no humiliated humiliated he burns with anger and he starts to make demands and, and send out commands and, and 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 he begins he begins to change change everything in his life and in his kingdom how could she refuse this drunken man sitting on his throne well whether it was courage whether it was irritation about the bad things that would happen, uh, whether it was self-preservation, she said no. And I say good for her. You know, wives, when your husbands are asking of you and demanding of you and pressuring you into something worldly, into something that you in good conscience just know you shouldn't do, well, when it's against what God wants, when it's worldly and it puts you in a compromised place where you need to choose between God's will and someone else's will, you choose God's will and good for you. Sometimes the brave thing is to say no and to refuse. Yes, the Bible does say husbands or wives submit to your husbands. But it also says out of verse before that, submit to one another, which means there will be times where husbands submit to their wives. It also says, submit to the government and submit to your leaders and submit to those who, who, who God has put into your life to lead you. But before we submit to husbands or wives or leaders or teachers or pastors, we submit to Jesus, the King of Kings, because his kingdom is more righteous. His kingdom is greater and his kingdom and his kingdom's will matter more. And so sometimes we need to say no to sin. We need to say no to abuse. We need to say no to being used and compromised. We need to be saying no to being asked when we're being asked to indulge in sinful things or worldly things. Whenever someone with authority asks us to do something we know is wrong in our hearts, uh, and we ought to decide that we're going to submit first to Jesus and here, Queen Vashti, who I doubt loved Jesus or loved God at all, but she still does what's right. She refuses the king. She says no to someone that nobody dared say no to. She makes a courageous, a brave, and, and what will end up being a costly decision when she says no. Uh, but I am sure that in her mind, she was thinking, that disgusting drunk is asking me to do disgusting things. And the answer is no. And honestly, 
Well, while she does end up exiled in the end of her part in this story, I'm guessing that the exile was probably way better than what could have happened. If she walked out into a room full of thousands of drunk, drunk for 180 days drunk, soldiers and politicians, and I'm guessing she saved herself from a whole lot of pain and rape and, and hurt and hardship. And saying no was the best thing she could have done. And sometimes the best thing you can do as a wife for your integrity, for your family, for your kids, is to say no to your husband. And sometimes the best thing you can do as a husband for your integrity and, and your kids and your family is to say no. When someone wants to do something that's sinful or wrong, and sometimes no is the best thing that your kids can see you saying. Your husband is on a self-destructive, self-serving, abusive bender. Your kids are learning from him what's acceptable and what you're going to accept. And you're showing them what a wife ought to accept. And they're learning from you what to put up with. In a way, you're teaching your daughters what's acceptable for a man in the way that he's going to treat them. Or worse, what's acceptable for a, for a young boy in the way that he's going to treat his future wife. Sometimes the best thing you can say is no to a situation, to get out of that situation, to say no and, and to put a stop to it. Well, there must be a lesson for marriages in here somewhere too. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, Xerxes and Vashti aren't, aren't a picture of a great marriage, but Maybe we can learn from their mistakes. You notice a lot of hurts in relationships begin with overindulging and self-serving attitudes, drugs, and alcohol. And that's where a lot of problems start. And maybe sobering up might be the best answer in your family. It might be the best answer because uh, all of a sudden you'll find you don't get as angry, demanding, and, and hurtful to each other because you've taken uh, you've taken something that, that heightens those emotions out. And, and instead of looking at your spouse as a sex object or a trophy to display to others, maybe we need to remember to look at our spouse as a person. Love the person. Be friends with the person. Put that person in your heart. You know, sex is something that God wants to be in, enjoyed between you and your spouse. And there's no reason for us to put our spouse on display in front of others so that others might imagine themselves in our marriage bed. Why would you want to do that at all? And so maybe it's time to stop making awkward comments or jokes or invitations. Maybe it's, it's time to stop looking for opportunity to put your wife on display like Xerxes did. And maybe remember to treat your spouse as a friend. Not the object or slave or servant or second-rate citizen in your home, but treat her as a friend you care about and a friend you love. God created Adam and Eve to be partners. He created Adam and Eve to be friends that cared about one another. He created Adam and Eve to treat one another with dignity, respect, love, grace, and care. Well, Xerxes was doing none of that. And instead, Xerxes in anger starts making more bad decisions. Not only did he decide that he was going to bring his wife in and display her out in front of uh, the tens of thousands of drunk men, but uh, he also then, when she said no, burning in anger, decided that he was going to, well, he's going to make some new laws. That's a good thing to do when you're drunk. And, and so he decides to make some life-altering, kingdom-altering, and changing uh, things in, in motion. The king asks his drunk friends, his drunk officials, for advice. And, and they, thinking they're smarter than they are, uh, start to give drunk advice. Man, if you put up with that, Xerxes, then all the men in all the kingdom are going to have their wives saying no too. That's a horrible thing. We can't have that. By tomorrow, everyone's going to hear about what Vashti said when she said no. And all our wives are all, all over the kingdom 
defend them. They're going to start saying no to their drunk, abusive, overpowering husbands. We can't have that. And they'll start to have contempt and anger towards their overpowering men in their lives. And, and we can't have that. And then there were these wise men who gave wise advice. And I say wise men because that's what the Bible calls them. That's what Xerxes called them. They were the kingdom's wise men. They were Xerxes' wise rulers, wise counselors. And they were dishing out worldly wisdom. At the end of, the, at the end of all this, a decree is sent out, a law is passed, and, uh, and well... At the end of it all, it says they looked at what they had done and it all made good sense to them. And you know what? Worldly wisdom almost always makes good sense to the people that are applying it. The ideas of the godless always make good sense to them uh, because they're without God. And they don't have God's standards to, to hold their decisions up to. The worldliness of the world makes perfect sense to them. It makes good sense to them. Have you ever seen someone make decisions in their life or they, they did something in their life and you just looked and you just went, why did you do that? That makes no sense. But almost every time something like that happens, the person that you're talking to can tell you why it made sense to them. And the sin of the sinful always makes good sense to them. And the pride of the prideful always makes good sense to them. And the sexual exploits and the lusts of the lustful always makes good sense to them. And so I want to encourage you be careful when your sin be careful when your foolishness starts to make good sense to you be careful when you start to rationalize and reason with God's wisdom and put your own wisdom above his you might come up with a thousand reasons why the Bible's wrong and you're right. You might come up with why God is out of line and, and why you've got it all figured out. You might figure out why Jesus' word is worth rejecting and your word is worth adhering to. And all those reasons make good sense to you. I just want to encourage you, be careful when the worldliness and the worldly wisdom of the world, even if it's your world, make good sense to you. That's another thing that goes with the world worldly is worldly wisdom and godless wisdom. It isn't wisdom at all. As scripture will tell us it's foolishness. In Proverbs and Psalms, it will say over and over, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the apostle Paul will write, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. And so when God looks at the wisdom of this world, he can see right through it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, it's, uh, the Apostle Paul will teach, hey, we have conducted ourselves in this world in holiness, in sincerity that come from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. The wisdom of Jesus' kingdom is more wise than the wisest of this world. And in this moment, Xerxes and his advisors are turning to the wisdom of the world and they're making some big decisions. And it's interesting because, well, Xerxes and all these guys will make these big decisions in a drunken stupor. And there's no waking up and going, oh man, I made a mistake last night. Xerxes instead, in pride and arrogance, goes ahead and plows forward. He doesn't have regrets or express regret. He doesn't go to the queen with a 
with a handful of flowers and says, sorry, honey, I was a drunk jerk the other night and, and please forgive me. No, he just remains in his pride. He leverages his power. He demands uh, his wife be exiled. He embarrasses her for embarrassing him in front of his kingdom. And Xerxes was unrepentant. He was self-righteous and he was stubborn. Have you ever made a mistake and you needed to apologize? for it. Maybe you were too harsh with your spouse. Maybe you had a time where you were too harsh on your kids and, and you lashed out at someone at work in frustration. And, and have you ever had to backtrack and go back and say, you know what? I was just wrong. I'm sorry. You were right. I admit I'm wrong and, and uh, please forgive me. Have you ever had to do that? Well, maybe you have had to do that, but you haven't done that. Have you ever known someone who just would never do something like that? Hopefully that's not you, uh, but, but, but have you ever known someone who just would never backtrack? They, they would never admit they were wrong. Instead, they would plow forward while being wrong. Well, some of you maybe need to start, well, letting go of some of the wrongs that you're pridefully holding on to. And some of you uh, need to repent. You need to ask forgiveness. You, you need to change. Don't be like Xerxes. Well, instead of apologizing, Xerxes is going to uh, kind of keep making things bigger. He makes a royal order, an, an edict, a decree. And you might remember in Persia that Xerxes' word was supposed to be received as the word of a god, and he would send out his word and the these rules and these laws would become the laws of the kingdom to be obeyed by everyone. And so he sends out this rule, the, the, the queen humiliated him. He's going to humiliate her. He's going to exile her, banish her. And then the edict goes out saying, all men are the rulers of their house and should say whatever pleases them. <laughs> How many of you men wish that edict would come out in in uh, in our country? You know that that all of a sudden that's a rule of law. And, and I know there are a lot of men out there who would love an edict like this because the only difference between Xerxes and them is. Uh, well, is, is that they can't afford to be Xerxes and they don't have the power to be Xerxes. Some men act like this edict is the edict in their home. I've even heard of Christian men who act like this is Jesus' idea of how to be a, a good husband and father. Uh, they, they feel the need to constantly quote verses like this verse uh, to, their, to their spouse so they can berate them, abuse them, and bully their wives into submission. Well, let me tell you, if you have to keep quoting scripture to remind your wife that she's supposed to respect you, maybe it's because you're not worthy of respect. Maybe it's because maybe it's because she doesn't respect you because you're not living respectably. You're not leading the way God wants you to lead with love and graciousness and kindness. Well, what you need is not people to bow down to you and bow down to your word. What you need is to repent and ask Jesus for forgiveness and, and let Jesus humble you before your family. Stop being a man who burns in anger, who spews out foolishness, pride and anger towards your family and others around you. You, you don't need to be more uh, saying more of what's on your mind. You, you, maybe you need to be practicing more patience and shutting your mouth and and caring and loving for those around you. In Proverbs chapter 18, verse 6, King Solomon was teaching his son about people who say what's ever on their mind. You know, that's what King Xerxes said every man should do. They, they should say whatever they want to their wives. But here's what Solomon teaches his son. He says, fools' words get them into constant quarrels, and they're asking for a beating. <laughs> Isn't that true? The fool just keeps saying whatever's on his mind, and, and the fool just keeps speaking and, and keeps plotting forward, and, and the fool eventually finds himself in a place where someone who's not going to put up with their mouth is going to hold them accountable. And even Xerxes, Xerxes will one day 
stand before Jesus and be held accountable for his foolish words. Just like all of us will one day stand and be held accountable for every foolish word. And, and Jesus' kingdom is a more righteous kingdom because it's going to be a kingdom where we're called to love, to care, to show compassion and mercy and grace rather than anger, bitterness, self-righteousness. Well, all this will set the stage for Esther to enter in. I think God is sharing what he shares with us here in chapter one. All of this grotesque, self-serving, self-worshipping, all of this lustfulness and drunkenness, all to show us just how in exile Esther is just how far away from a godly world Esther's going to step into. Uh, just to show us the stage, the setting for the world that Esther's going to step in and she's going to say, even though I'm in a world like this, I'm going to seek God's will and I'm going to seek his righteous kingdom because his kingdom is greater. His kingdom is better. His kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. Later, the Apostle Paul will teach us in the book of Galatians that, that the worldliness of the world is so easy to see. It's so easy to recognize. And it's so easy and clear when people are living by the worldliness and the wisdom of the world. Uh, I mean, it's easy to see when we look at Xerxes. It's also easy to see when, when we look at one another's lives. In Galatians 5, 19 to 25, it says this, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, and there he's using that term to describe worldliness. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sin like these. Let me tell you again, as I have said before, that anyone living this sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of this world. That's people seeking the worldly kingdom. And Xerxes personifies it. And, and, and he describes how the subjects of Jesus' kingdom are different. They live differently. They're filled with his spirit and they're called to live in a different way. Because he says, just like it's obvious when people live worldly, it's also obvious when people live for a more righteous world. He says this, but in verse 22 of Galatians 5, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and, and crucified them there. And since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. His kingdom is, is built on the love of God, the graciousness of God, the kindness of God, the goodness of God. And Esther will not act as a citizen of this worldly kingdom. Instead, she will act as a citizen seeking God's kingdom. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, it says this, Jesus will teach us, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So if you can learn to, to put your heart and put your mind to a place where you're seeking God's kingdom above all else, he'll provide you with whatever you need. And Jesus even told us that when we pray, we ought to pray that God's kingdom would come. And I think what he meant by that was that we pray that the effects of God's kingdom will be felt around us, that, that God's kingdom will become more and more a part of my life, that God's 
kingdom and it's the effects of the kingdom will be a part of my family's life, a part of my community's life, a, a part of my church's life. Here's how Jesus would say it. This is how you should pray. Father, may your name be kept holy and may your kingdom come. Well, his is a more righteous kingdom. We began talking about uh, a mafia don who had a kingdom and built a kingdom of crime and and lived a worldly life. And, and, and we've been talking about King Xerxes, who's even greater picture of somebody who sought the world. And, and we've talked about family and how in a lot of families, they're being run by men uh, who act like kings of their kingdoms and and they're just as harsh and abusive and hurtful to their spouses well we want to seek a better kingdom in this world we want to seek a better kingdom than this world and the kingdom we seek is a righteous kingdom a kingdom where its king dies on a cross saying to us this is how much i love you and then shows us he has not only the power of life and death, but he has the keys to heaven and hell as he rose from the dead and tells us that if we would put our hope in him, if we would follow him, he would bring us into a better, a more righteous kingdom. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for the picture of Xerxes and a worldly kingdom so that we could place it at the backdrop in the background and compare how good your kingdom is to it. God, I know that there's a temptation in all of us to desire the things of the world to want to be a part of a worldly kingdom to seek the pleasures of this world to love this world i pray that you will help us to love you and to seek your kingdom instead it's in jesus name we pray amen well i want to say thank you for joining me today as we have studied the book of Esther we're going to actually finally get to meet Esther next week when we dive into chapter two together and so I want to encourage you make sure you come back next week and I just want to take a moment and uh, say thank you to those of you who are um, who are supporting this online teaching time with your gifts and with your offerings and by giving uh, if you're interested in supporting this this online teaching time, if you're interested in supporting the ministry and the work of Renonia Church as we are working hard to put the message out, the message of the gospel, the teachings of scripture out uh, in these online teaching times. If you would like to support that, you can do that in a couple ways that are very easy. One of them is you can go to www.vernonia.church. That's V-E-R-N-O-N-A dot church and there you'll find a give tab at our website you can hit that tab you can uh, go to the give tab and, and 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 open that up you can give any amount at, at on, on any basis you want you can give a one-time gift you could give a, a a gift over every week or every couple weeks or however you want to do it and and you could give as much as little or as much as you want as well uh, we've had people give substantial one-time gifts We've had people who give regularly every week, and uh, we have people who give once a month. I mean, there's all kinds of ways people do it. You can do whatever is right for you. Uh, if you've never given, I'd maybe encourage you. You could join us, and you could help out just by deciding, well, maybe you'll give $1 a week, $1 per message a week. You know, that could go a long ways in helping us grow this ministry and, and reach out to more people online. And uh, you, you could also, if you, if 
you don't want to do it that way, you could also text to give. Uh, uh, you could text the word give, G-I-V-E, to 503-376-6646. Uh, that's G-I-V-E to 503-376-6646. And you just text the word give, and that will open up our Tithely account, and you can you can do the same thing there. Uh, so those are two easy ways to go and to give to Vernonia Church. I do want to make sure I just say thank you once again to all of you who are supporting the work that we're doing. Your giving is making a difference. And thank you for joining me in giving to this ministry. Uh, really, I really appreciate your partnership. And so with that, I want to invite you. We'll finish up our online teaching time the way we always do. I want to pray for the work of Vernonia Church. I want to pray for this online teaching time, especially that it continues to grow. And uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, I pray that you will help us with this online teaching time. I pray that you'll help this uh, time to to grow. I, I pray that you'll help Help us reach more people with the message of the gospel so that they might be encouraged by your words, that they might discover that there is a, a kingdom that's more righteous than this world and that they're invited to it. I pray, God, that you would uh, just bless the work of Vernonia Church. Help us spread the message of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's finish up by declaring it's been a great day together. And uh, so on the count of three, wherever you are, uh, if you can, you're welcome to join me. It's just always a refreshing thing to say at the end of these teaching times. And so we're going to count to three and declare it's been a great day. One, two, three. It's been a great day. I hope you have a great day and a great week. And I'll see you next week.